Good morning, Orchard Hills. Thanks so much for being here to worship with us. Welcome to everybody in the room, everybody online, and everybody outside. We are so thankful that you are a part of this and that we get to worship the Lord together. Um, Scott is out of town today, so sorry, you get me. Um, but he and has brought a team of people to Israel. So they landed safely yesterday, and we've got a picture of them, I think, from just today. Um, so yeah, Mike and Karen Wade, Mike and Amber Almond, uh, Bob and Yvonne Chandler, a number of different folks uh, from our church. So be praying for them for safety and just for good travels and a really blessed trip. So greetings from Scott and the team in Israel. Um, my name's Sutton Wirt. I serve here as the community care pastor, and I am really excited uh, to get into uh, and to kick off our summer series on the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. So maybe you've never heard of Hosea, um, or maybe you have heard of Hosea, and you're like, man, that's Old Testament stuff. Like, we've been talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and now you're taking us all the way back to the minor prophets. What? And I, I get it. I get it. But we're doing this for a couple of reasons, and so I'll give, you, I'll give you two. One, this is exactly what Jesus did. So remember, when we were uh, looking at Jesus walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the day he was resurrected, and then later that evening when he appears again to all of the disciples in that locked upper room, what does he do on both occasions? Listen to this, Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So to explain to his disciples who he is, what he's doing, why he's doing it, Jesus himself took them to the prophets. And so we too are going to go to the prophets because we want to find Jesus there. I think so often you and I can have this false picture of God where we think, oh, in the Old Testament he was this way, but then in the New Testament he really like softened and chilled out. Um, and that is just not the case. Uh, the author to the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our God, and he is the same God that he was in the New Testament, as he was in the Old Testament, as he is for us here today, right now, and that he will be forever. And we want to know him. We want to know our God, this one that we're singing about, this one who we're worshiping. We want to know him. And so, to do that, we're turning to the prophets. A second reason that we're going um, to Hosea is that we want to see our church grow in Bible literacy, biblical literacy. Um, the idea that, that you need to know what is in your Bible and how to read it and how to respond to it. Scott has preached about this before. Um, Michaela Spees just started a women's study on Wednesday nights on that very topic right here at church. Um, and we believe that this is so important. In our culture today, there are attacks on the truth from all sides. And now, more than ever, it seems like people who call themselves Christians have no idea what is in their Bibles. Maybe we know a little bit about the New Testament, but throw us in the Old Testament, and we're like that 2000s TV show that everybody watched but nobody really knew what was happening. Lost. I got somebody. Um, we're lost. 
But notice this, if you flip open the Bible to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, you're kind of getting near the end of the story. Most of it is, is back here in the Old Testament. And I, I did the math this week, and just according to the page numbers, the Old Testament is 77% of your Bible. 77% of God's revelation of himself, of his heart, of his character, of who he is, and we mostly ignore it. So we don't want to do that. Um, and so we're going back to the prophets, and we've chosen the book of Hosea. So let's go ahead and turn there. Um, if you don't know where Hosea is, it's after Daniel and before Joel. Um, so I'm sure that'll help you. Um, <laughs> if that's not helpful, your Bible has an index in the front. Um, it is to the right of the Psalms, left of the New Testament. Um, and if you want to use those church Bibles that are there in front of you, um, it's on page 889. 889. So let's pray, and then we will dive into the text. <clears throat> Well, Lord Jesus, we do want to know you uh, for who you really are. We don't want to make uh, false images of you. We don't want to create some God in our heads um, that's not the true God. And so, uh, Lord, we know that you um, have spoken. You have come into this world in flesh. You've revealed yourself in your word. And so we want to know you more. So, Lord, would you reveal your heart to us through this time, through the book of Hosea? Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand these words? Would you um, convict us, challenge us, and draw us into your presence, closer to your heart? Thank you so much for this time, for these people, and for the gift of the scriptures, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so today is going to be a lot of introductory material um, we're going to be setting the stage, situating ourselves in a part of Scripture we haven't been in for a long time. So uh, I've got a good bit of content. I'm going to try to get it to you quickly, but uh, buckle your seatbelts. Could be a wild ride. Um, to approach a new book of the Bible, it's helpful to ask some introductory questions. And Jen Wilkin, in her book, Women of the Word, that the ladies are studying right now, uh, gives us five questions to ask when we come to a book of the Bible. So we'll use that method. First one's this, who wrote it? The answer to this one is easy. Verse 1 of Hosea chapter 1 tells us, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri. So we don't know much about Hosea. Um, we don't know much about his life other than the three chapters uh, at the beginning of this book that bears his name. Um, we do know that his name means salvation. Uh, it's very close to uh, Joshua which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, which means God is salvation. Um, and we can assume that Hosea was a good man who loved the Lord because he was a prophet, a man who, through whom God chose to speak. So we might also ask here, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? And I'll give you a simple definition. A prophet is a spokesperson for God. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. So typically when we hear prophecy, I think we think like, uh, you know, future telling, predictions, that sort of thing, which the prophets certainly did. But even more than that, the prophets serve to remind the people of God of the big picture story that they're living in. They remind them of their history, of who God is and what he's done. And more than anything, they remind them of the covenant that God has made with his people. They remind them that they are in a covenant relationship with God. Um, and since Israel was in the process at this point in history of breaking that covenant, 
Their messages are often ones of judgment and rebuke, indicting them for their sin and their injustice and their idolatry. So that's who wrote it, and that's what a prophet is. Second question, when was it written? Verse 1 also gives us the answer to this. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So to situate the time period, the text tells us who the kings were reigning in Judah and in Israel at that time. Um, and so from historical records and from the information in First and Second Kings, we know that this was about 755 to 715 B.C. So does that help you? Does anybody know what was going on at that time? I didn't either, um, but we're going to check it out. So let's zoom out and take a big picture look at the timeline of the Old Testament so that you know what's going on. I love this stuff. I hope you all do too. Um, so here we go. On the left side here, you've got uh, creation, fall, flood. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way to the right side, uh, which takes us up to 1000 BC in the reign of King David. So in the middle there, you've got um, Abraham, a key player in the Old Testament. Uh, God says, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bless the world. And so Abraham has Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has these kids, and their family begins to grow, but they, they have to move to Egypt because of a famine. And there, in Egypt, they begin to be slaves of the Egyptians. And so hundreds of years pass. Through Moses, God brings the people of Israel up out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and to the wilderness, to this mountain called Sinai. And there, the Lord makes with them a covenant, a covenant. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is essential. This is the heart of Israel's identity. Unlike every other nation that has all these other gods, Israel has one God, just one, and they belong to him. Now, unfortunately, as God brings Israel into the land um, through Moses and then Joshua, we studied Joshua a couple years ago. Um, as God does that, they're doing okay at first, and then they quickly are not faithful to God. They, they run around on him, and they um, pursue other nations and other gods. And so you have this whole period of the judges where Israel is suffering the consequences of their sin, where they're being attacked by other nations because they're not being faithful to the Lord. But then finally, they cry out for a king to make things right. And God gives them a king, and at first this king looks great, but it turns out he's just like them. He's not faithful to the Lord. And so the Lord rejects him, and he says, Saul, you, you, you can't be king anymore. I'm going to raise up a king who is after my own heart. And the Lord does that in the character of David. And so King David um, is someone who is a huge character in the Old Testament. So all the way over here, 1000 B.C., David reigns for 40 years, and then his son Solomon does. Let's go to that next slide. Sweet. So here we are, David, Solomon over here on the left side. Um, and that is Israel's golden age. That's when things are going well. There's prosperity. There's safety. David uh, brings together the 12 tribes of Israel into one united kingdom. They're together. They're focused on each other and on the Lord, and things are going well. Um, but that, unfortunately, does not last long. So after Solomon, the unthinkable happens. Um, 
930 BC, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. Split in two. And so um, the ten tribes to the north, uh, they go with another king, and only two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, stay committed to the Davidic line and the Davidic king. And so as things go on for the next 200 or so years, both of these nations um, begin to go into decline. They're divided. Um, they struggle to be faithful to the Lord, um, and things are not going well. But during that time, from 900 to 700 and a little bit beyond, that's when the prophets step on the scene. And through the prophets, God is revealing to Israel what he thinks about what's happening in their history. He's revealing to them what his heart for them. And he's saying, come back to me, return to me. I'm your God. I led you up out of Egypt. I'm the one who set you free. I'm the reason you're in this good land. Come back to me. And the people of Israel do not repent. They continue in their pride and their idolatry. And finally, the warnings that God sends through the prophets come to pass. Um, in 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria, which was powerful in the north, comes in and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, does all right for another 150 years or so. They've got some good kings, some bad kings, um, but eventually they too uh, fall prey to exactly what their northern neighbors did. They worship other gods and the Lord rejects them and says, you're not allowed to stay here anymore. And so then the kingdom of Babylon comes in and takes the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. Their sin had earned death, just like their first parents so long ago. Just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, Israel is exiled from the promised land because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God. And eventually they will come back to the land but they will be a shadow of their former selves, longing for the day when they won't uh, be a fractured nation anymore, when they won't be occupied by enemies, when all those promises of the prophets will come to pass. And so it's on to that scene that Jesus steps, the one who's going to fulfill all of those promises. That is where Jesus comes in. So that's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Hope you enjoyed that. I did. I think it's fun. Um, so let's move on. Question three. To whom was it written? So we've got, uh, we've got the timeline that it was in, but now who is it written to? So here in the north, this is the kingdom of Israel in the green. This is the ten tribes that separated, refused to follow the Davidic king. And um, yeah, that is the, the northern kingdom of Israel. This in the brown is the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, so just Judah and Benjamin. Um, and so right about there is the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and so the southern kingdom came to be known as Judah, and the northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim, which you'll see a lot here in Hosea. Um, now the northern kingdom is the ones to whom Hosea is writing. Um, the, the rebellious people in the north are the people that Hosea is addressing his message to and for 250 or so years that Israel exists, they have no good kings. The spiritual condition in that land is, is terrible. Um, there was violence and bloodshed, injustice, infighting, greed and envy, Game of Thrones type stuff. 
These kings set up their own gods that they created with their hands, and they promoted the the worship of foreign gods from other nations like Baal and Asherah. And in the midst of that paganism, Hosea comes in speaking a message of, of judgment, of God's judgment, but also of God's unfailing, never stopping love. So that's to whom it was written. Question four, in what style was it written? In what style was it written? Kind of an interesting question. There's lots of different styles of writing in our one Bible, so it helps to know the styles. Hosea is written in the style of prophecy, which is mostly poetry. It's written in a poetic form. And so uh, something you could compare it to is the Psalms, Um, Psalms are are poetry. They've got lots of metaphor and lots of images that you kind of have to unpack and get into. Um, But whereas the Psalms are are man's words to God because they're they're written as prayers, prophecy um, is God's words to man. Now, all of Scripture is is God-breathed. It's from his hand. But, But prophecy is unique because it's like it's giving us this window into God's heart into what he feels about his people's situation, into what he thinks about what they're doing. It's showing us kind of like the interior life of God and, and how heartbroken he is over his people's sin, and yet also how, how tender his love and compassion is toward them and his desire for them to come back to him. So we will see that in Hosea. And then finally, uh, question five, why was it written? Why was this book written? Well, as I've said, Hosea was written to the rebellious people of the northern nation of Israel. Um, And Hosea brought to them a message of God's impending judgment for two big things. One, the worship of idols, which we've talked about. And then two, a lack of the knowledge of God. Lack of the knowledge of the true God. Now, that word for knowledge is interesting. The word for knowledge or to know in Hebrew, it's yada. And it's, uh, it really serves as a euphemism for a more intimate kind of knowledge. Um, like in Genesis, when it says that an Adam knew his wife Eve. Um, it is a word that is used to refer to sexual intimacy. Um, and that is exactly the metaphor that we are confronted with as the book of Hosea begins. That God has been a faithful, committed husband to his people Israel, and that they have been an adulterous and unfaithful wife. Let's check it out. Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, the land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. Now those words, promiscuous, adulterous, unfaithful, they're all the same word in Hebrew. The ESV translates it as whoredom. The NLT translates it as prostitution. God tells his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute, a woman who is characterized by her unfaithfulness. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? It's supposed to be. And God immediately gives us the reason why. He says that Hosea is supposed to do this as a picture of the way that the land of Israel has committed adultery on him, their faithful God. 
They have not been faithful to the covenant that he made with them in the wilderness. They have run around on him. They have committed adultery with other gods. They have been a promiscuous and unfaithful wife to a man who has only ever been faithful. Faithful. This is serious stuff. But Hosea does it. He marries Gomer um, as a picture of faithful God and unfaithful Israel. Um, And it gets more serious. Gomer has three children whom the Lord names as further signs of what God is speaking to Israel about her sin. Let's pick it up and uh, let's do verse three here. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibling, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse four. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Notice it doesn't say, and bore him a daughter. So we don't know who's, who's the child might have been. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruhama, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Ruhama, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So the Lord gives these names to these children, names which further show who Israel has become in her sin. The first, Jezreel, refers to a valley outside the capital of the northern kingdom, a place where great evil and bloodshed had taken place multiple times in their recent history. And so this was essentially like naming that child death or bloodshed. The second was not loved, or some translations say no mercy, showing that God would cease his mercy to the house of Israel. And then the last name was the most shocking. Remember, Israel was defined as the people of God. This was their national identity. This was how they saw themselves as people of the one true God. And yet here, God reverses that covenant formula that he spoke over them at Sinai. And he says, you are not my people and I am not your God. This would have been shocking and devastating to these people. Most people probably would not have believed Hosea but would have mocked him or refused to believe what he was saying. But here, God is essentially saying, you will be destroyed without mercy because I am no longer your God. I am no longer your God. This is what the adultery of Israel has earned. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? When we see the foolishness of Israel in the Old Testament, I think it is easy to look down on them and to just think, you know, man, what a bunch of idiots. Like, what were they doing? (laughs) They had it all. They were in the land. They had God. They had his favor. And then they're bowing down to statues. Like, why? What the heck? But what Hosea is inviting you and I to see is that we do the very same thing. 
I think we tend to think of idolatry as this silly old thing of the past where people were, you know, bowing down to statues or worshiping carved images, but it is very much something that is alive and well today. Let me offer this definition of idolatry. Idolatry is anything that displaces affection for, trust in, and allegiance to God. Idolatry is anything that displaces affection for, trust in, and allegiance to God. We are called to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we turn from him as our deepest joy, our source of life, the one who is first and foremost in our heart and in our affections, then we commit idolatry. And as John Calvin put it, a human heart is a ceaseless factory of idols. We create them all the time. We are constantly wanting something else other than the one that we were made for. And so as we walk through Hosea together this summer, we will see the idols of sex, money, power, comfort, security, military might, religion even, and corruption all called out and exposed. We will see our own sin on display. We will see how our dependence on God and our, our, our dependence not on God, our lack of, of desire for him, our desire to depend on anything else but him constitutes spiritual adultery. We will see our own lack of the knowledge of him and our failure to love and seek him as he has loved us. We will see our unfaithfulness, a promiscuous wife who's run around on her faithful, loving husband. Is there any hope to be found here? Well, the answer Hosea gives is a resounding yes. Because the same hope that you and I have is the same hope of unfaithful Gomer and unfaithful Israel. Like we, unlike we who are unfaithful, the one who loves us and has committed himself to us is incredibly, completely faithful. If we, like Israel, are supposed to see ourselves as Gomer in this story, then Hosea is our faithful God, choosing to marry us and be committed to us. Our faithful God who is made known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Hosea's name is practically the same name as that of Jesus's. God is salvation. It's only by his faithfulness that we have any hope at all only by his committed love and his faithfulness and his salvation. So listen, listen to this gospel hope that sounds forth from the last verses of this chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Yet, that's a big word right there, yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That, that's referencing back to a promise God made to Abraham. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And you shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. 
What good news. Almost as soon as God has pronounced the judgment that, in, that is to come, it's almost like he cannot help but also pronounce the hope that follows judgment. Yes, there are grave consequences for sin. To think that we can live like hell without repercussions is foolishness. It's foolishness. But here is the good news. There is a Savior. Our God is salvation. That's the definition of who he is. And despite our unloveliness, he has loved us with an everlasting love. He has taken on himself all of the painful names that have been spoken over you by your sin and your shame and your failures and your regrets. He went to the place of death and bloodshed so that you would not have to. Jesus on the cross received no mercy so that you could receive his mercy. Jesus was crucified outside the city, cut off from the people of God so that you could be welcomed into the people of God so that you could be called a child of the living God. He is the only one who could reunite the broken kingdom of Israel and Judah. He is the only one who could reunite two separated, fractured people, Jew and Gentile. This is exactly what we saw last week. He brings together Jew and Gentile. He is the one head that verse 11 is speaking of. He is the one who has brought together these broken people so that you and I can become a part of his people, a part of his whole and holy kingdom so that you and I can receive mercy and receive love and be called his children. He has done this. Jesus is our salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so as we walk through the book of Hosea this summer, my prayer is that our hearts would be stirred with renewed affection for our gracious and faithful God. That we would see how gross and shameful our sin is. That we would be uncomfortable with how alike we are to Gomer in Israel. But I also hope that we see a God who never gives up on his people, whose faithfulness endures throughout all generations, who no matter how far his people run and how much they sin, he continues to pursue them, to run after them, to come for them, and to bring them back to himself. I hope you see a God like Hosea, a God who is your salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the Savior. There is no other. Lord, I pray that as we go through uh, Hosea this summer, that you would speak to us, that you would um, show us our hearts and the, the idolatry that lives within them. Lord, draw us out and call us to repentance. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this book that we would see your goodness, that we would feel your goodness and your mercy chasing us down, running after us, calling us back to dwell in your house, to live with you, to not be looking to anything else to satisfy our souls, to provide for our needs, to get us through hard times, Lord, but that you and you alone would be our faithful husband, the one that we are committed to, and who love through good and bad, through the easy times and the hard, 
Lord, thank you that unlike us, your love does not waver, that it is a set and fixed covenant that you have made. Oh, Lord, thank you for this faithful, faithful love. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts now, that you'd um, just convict us of anything that we need to be convicted of. Lord, if there's any um, one here who doesn't know you as their faithful and, and true God, that you'd reveal yourself to them, speak to them, show them your kindness and your mercy. And Lord, for all of us here who are part of uh, this church, who are part of the church, you're often unfaithful bride. Lord, I thank you that you are making us pure and spotless, that you've pledged yourself to us and you will not stop till we stand before you holy, pure and blameless, free and safe in your love. Oh Lord, you're so good. We love you. We want to love you more. Thanks for loving us so well. It's for your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.